You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It really is so wonderful to be here with you again. Thank you for the very warm welcome and indeed the invitation. It's not my first time here. In fact, my my brother and his uh, wife, they used to be members here, Keith and Gillian, perhaps some of you know them. Anyway, it's great for me to be here to share a little bit more about the great gospel needs that exist within our own continent of Europe. Uh, I am the full-time representative for EMF. It's a role I've been doing for around eight years now or so. Um, I'm based in Balamoney, travel all over Northern Ireland, promoting the work trying to encourage people to engage and to mobilize gospel work in Europe. The continent of Europe is probably the greatest mission field in the world today. For many of us, that seems strange, perhaps even unbelievable. How could a modern, prosperous, multicultural continent with a rich religious heritage have such immense spiritual needs? Well, the facts speak for themselves. The overall percentage of evangelical Christians in Europe today is just 2.5%. That means Europe is the least evangelical continent in our world. In fact, there are now more evangelical Christians in just one African country, Nigeria, than in the whole continent of Europe. Isn't that staggering? Sadly, the challenges facing gospel work in our continent abound. There's this stampede towards secularism and consumerism. Then there's the rapid growth of Islam, the negative influence of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And finally, the plague of the prosperity gospel. All told, there are now more than 700 million European people without Christ. More than 700 million are on their way to a lost eternity. This is Europe. This is our mission field. But despite the daunting difficulties, the opportunities for gospel work here are marvelous. For over 60 years, EMF have been championing Christian mission across our continent. Very simply, what we do is this. We train, send, and support mainly national leaders, helping them to plant, pastor, and multiply local churches. There are three standout features to our work. Number one, we are committed to robust theology. So we believe that good doctrine really does matter. We are a reformed mission. Number two, we love the local church. We believe there's never been a greater need for churches in Europe which are God-centered, gospel-driven, and culturally connected. 
In standout feature number three, we support mainly national workers, those who are indigenous, working in their home countries, not always, but mostly. Why? Well, because national workers, they know the language, they know the culture, they know the people. We think that's a strategy that's sensible and biblical. All in, we're supporting over 90 gospel workers in 17 European countries. What's our end goal as a mission? What's our ultimate aim? Well, our vision is to see churches being planted and disciples being made for the joy of the nations and the glory of God. That is our passion. That is what we long for. That is what we pray for. That is why we exist. And the Lord has been blessing our work in wonderful ways. This is the most encouraging season of work I've experienced with the mission, probably the most encouraging season of work in decades. Since the start of last year, we've been able to welcome nine new missionaries or missionary couples into our missionary family. So two couples for Romania, one man for France, one couple for Spain, two couples for Portugal, one man for Norway, one couple for Moldova, and one couple for Finland. All indigenous, all young, all engaged in really good, solid gospel work. And this morning, we're going to explore the work of just one of these new missionary families. But before we get to meet them, we're going to get to know their country first. So where are we traveling off to this morning, this afternoon? We are heading to the land of Portugal. Hands up. Who's been to Portugal before? Yeah, sea of hands. Portugal is, I think, one of Europe's most interesting and impressive countries. Next slide, please. This is the westernmost country in Europe, which is famed for its golden beaches, rugged mountains, the cobblestone villages, and medieval castles. Doesn't that make you want to go on your holidays again? It is a land of breathtaking beauty. It's also one of the oldest countries in the world. Its borders have remained largely unchanged since 1255. And throughout its history, this small, easily overlooked little nation has had a massive impact on the world around it. As you can see, it was the pioneer of world exploration back in the 15th and 16th centuries and helped to discover new lands, places like Brazil, parts of Africa and the Far East. With these discoveries came lucrative trading routes. Many new colonies were established. And all this enabled Portugal to become the first global empire in world history, an empire that would span almost 600 years. In time, of course, Portugal's power and influence dwindled. Many of its territories disappeared. The glory of the past has certainly dimmed, yet its legacy lives on. Next picture, please. Uh, Portuguese is the official language 
in nine countries and is still spoken by some 250 million people, making it the sixth most spoken language in the world. Sadly, however, Portugal's spiritual history and heritage is much less impressive. Because for century after century, its people have been blinded to the gospel of grace. Even that great, that mighty reformation of the 16th century led by Martin Luther and others failed to truly penetrate Portugal. And so, as you can see, while a host of other European countries were ablaze with the good news, liberated by those truths that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Portugal remained in darkness. The tragic reality is this. Portugal is a land which has never experienced any significant spiritual revival or awakening. So what's the spiritual situation like there today? Have things changed? Has it improved? Well, Portugal remains a very religious country, at least outwardly so. One religion continues to be dominant, that of Roman Catholicism. In fact, the number of Portuguese people identifying as Roman Catholic today is around 77%, which in the Europe of today is a huge number. Like its neighbor, Spain, freedom of religion is guaranteed in Portugal, but the Roman Catholic Church retains powerful privileges from the government. And so it is pre its presence is felt in every city, every town, and every village. Now, one very visible example of this is found in a very small city, really a town, called Fatima. Perhaps you've heard of Fatima before. It contains a huge basilica and one of the most important Roman Catholic shrines in the world. It's dedicated to the Virgin Mary who, it's believed, appeared to three shepherd children way back in 1917. As news of these supposed apparitions spread, so did Fatima's fame. Today, Fatima is the most important destination for pilgrims in Portugal. In normal years, it attracts over one and a half million people every year. In fact, on one day alone, May 13th each year, hundreds of thousands of Portuguese pilgrims will make the trek to Fatima, filled with passionate religious devotion. And for many, this means covering the last 500 yards on the marble pathway, down on their hands and knees, praying and weeping as they crawl toward the shrine. Isn't that sobering? So many people, men and women, trying in vain to earn, to merit some favor with God, blind to the free gift of grace that is available through faith in Christ alone. Then, as you can see in the evenings, the cardinals and the bishops, they will lead these huge torchlight processions which serve only to magnify the spiritual darkness 
of the people there. So many religious Portuguese men and women without God and without hope. Note, however, that things are changing. For the last two decades or so, the religious landscape within the country has been reshaped, but sadly, not for the better. A slow but steady seismic shift has been occurring as its people, particularly its younger people, increasingly abandon their historic Judeo-Christian beliefs, turning instead to secularism. And as they do so, they are mirroring much of Western Europe today. This new generation is turning its back on the church, viewing it as irrelevant, outdated, insignificant. And so, while over three-quarters of Portuguese people profess to be Roman Catholic, dig down a little bit and you discover that less than half of those people actually attend church on a regular basis. You see, for many, the church is only used for baptisms, for weddings, for funerals. In fact, there's even a substantial shortage of priests within the country. And we can see evidence of this growing tide of secularization in some of the laws that recent governments have introduced. So, back in 2007, abortion was further liberalized. A few years later, same-sex marriage was legalized. More recently, the Gender Identity Bill was signed into law, producing some of the most liberal rules around concerning transgenderism. So it's clear that against this historic backdrop of Roman Catholicism, Portuguese people, especially its younger people, are becoming increasingly irreligious, liberal, and godless. But what about the evangelical church in Portugal? I've got to ask, is there much of a gospel witness here? Sadly, no. It's widely believed that 1% or less of Portuguese people are evangelical Christians. That means there are many areas in Portugal without any kind of gospel witness at all. In fact, it's believed that some 44 of Portugal's 316 counties have no evangelical churches of any kind. Isn't that remarkable? 44 whole counties without the work and witness of one gospel-proclaiming church. So then, when you take all of this into account, when you stand back and you look at the big picture in Portugal, this is surely one of the neediest mission fields, not just in Europe, but in the world. Now, I know that so far, it's all been a bit doom and gloom, hasn't it? (laughs) There's not really a whole lot here to send you on your way rejoicing in the Lord, is there? But you know what? There is good news, because as ever, God does have his people, and he is building his church. And it's just now that we're going to zoom in 
And I want to introduce one of these new missionary families in Portugal. So here are Diego and Stella Lopes. They're three lovely children, Diego, David, and Esther. Uh, Diego was actually born in Brazil, raised in a loving Roman Catholic family, came to saving faith when he was just 10. The years passed. He grew in his faith, felt God's call to pastoral ministry. After Bible college, became the pastor of a Portuguese-speaking church in South Africa, a country in which he also met and married uh, his Portuguese wife, Stella. Together, they were engaged in church planting in South Africa, Botswana, and Mozambique, and they served there for 11 years. After that, they moved to North America, to Canada, where they ministered in a Portuguese church for six years. But all the while, they longed to return to needy Portugal. And back in 2018, the Lord opened the door to not just one, but two key ministries, church planting and theological education building up a new body of believers and raising up a new generation of church leaders. So firstly, the church plant. It's in the capital city, Lisbon. And despite a host of obstacles and problems, the Lord blessed their efforts. This little plant is now a fully constituted church. Today, there will be around 50 people gathering to worship our Savior. Is that not cause for rejoicing in the Lord? I wish I could tell you that kind of thing happens all the time in Europe. It doesn't. What a great blessing and encouragement. But secondly, alongside this, Diego is spearheading the formation of a new Bible college. It's called the Martin Bucer Seminary. And it's going to be the first Reformed seminary in the whole country. And it started last week, with 20 people enrolled, hoping to uh, equip themselves and train themselves for existing ministry or to begin pastoral work. Fast forward 5, 10, 15 years. What a wonderful effect this could have on the life and the witness of the Portuguese church. It's so exciting. But I'm not going to tell you any more because I'm going to let Diego and Stella do that. They recorded a short video, and I'm hoping that our technology doesn't let us down here. So let's see if we can watch this little video from them now. Hi, I am Diego Lopes. I am Stella Lopes, and we are missionaries in Lisbon, Portugal. Portugal needs the gospel. In a country dominated by Roman Catholicism for centuries, only 1% of the population is actually evangelical, according to the last census. And from that number, a very small minority is actually reformed in their theology. We have three children, Diogo, 10 years old, David, 7 years old, and baby Esther is 9 months old. I was ordained in Brazil and then sent to be a pastor of a Portuguese church in South Africa in 2002. 
you know, and then we got married, we started serving together uh, in the church, and we participated in so many things, uh, always ministering to Portuguese and English speaking, but mostly Portuguese. We live in Seychelles, and that is where our church is situated, which is Margem Sul. So just to explain geographically, Lisbon has the river, the Tagus River, or in Portuguese, Tejo, which cuts through the city, separating the North Bank from the South Bank. And we're located in the South Bank of the River Tagus. And that's where our church is, and that's where we also live. In 2018, the Church of Lapa started praying for a church plant on this side of the bank because there were a lot of families driving to the other side to find a healthy expository preaching church. That's when they started praying, decided to invite us. And we came here in the end of 2019. And then, as you know, the pandemic hit the world and we were yet to plant a church. And now, against all odds, the Lord provided, the Lord was gracious and merciful. And uh, by the grace of God, we planted a church and it became autonomous in November this past November, on the 7th of November, and we are so grateful for what the Lord has been doing here in the community in the southern bank of Lisbon. When we decided to come to Portugal, it was because I was invited to be part of the leadership of the Martin Bootser Seminary, which is the first reformed seminary in Portugal, because we believe it's central for the revitalization and church planting in Portugal that men handle well the Word of God and proclaim faithfully the Word of God with sound doctrine. We believe that Reformed theology has much to contribute for the health of the church in Portugal. My ministry is with the women of the church where we study the Bible, we study God's Word weekly, uh, we usually study books of the Bible, so we spend a long time, many weeks studying that book of the Bible. Uh, looking at its context, looking at its structure, and then looking um, how it applies to our daily lives. So we have some prayer requests to share with you. We are right now looking for a more adequate place to, for our meetings, for our church to take place, to happen. Right now we are in a, a great space that the Lord has blessed us with, but uh, we face a challenge that we are running out of space, and we also need rooms for our Sunday school uh, classes, so we are looking for a, a bigger, more adequate space for our church. So we ask that you may pray with us so that we can find that place. Uh, pray for our seminary as well. In September, we start the group uh, that will be engaged in pastoral training, uh, the advanced theological training for pastors that will begin in September. So please pray for that as well. Please pray for the development of the leadership of our church that's taking place. And lastly, for our family, for our children, uh, for their education, um, and for us. For, for health. Health, yes. And strength for the ministry. Well, Diego and Stella, they are a super couple engaged in these two significant and strategic ministries, church planting, theological education in one of the neediest countries in Europe. Friends, you've got a great opportunity this morning to get involved, 
to stand with them shoulder to shoulder, to see their work under God grow and flourish. So what can you do? Well, why not commit to supporting them on a regular basis prayerfully? I brought along some literature. It's on the table as you as you leave at the back there. There's a little sign-up sheet. Pop your details down. We'll send you their prayer letters. You won't be bombarded, but you'll have just enough to be informed, to be able to pray faithfully and intelligently. Also, be sure to grab your copy of their little leaflet here. Again, that will summarize all the details. Uh, be another little prompt to prayer. And I've also brought with me our vision magazine. So these come out three times a year. And again, if you'd like to receive this by email or post, get your details down. We'd love to arrange that for you. And this edition focuses exclusively on the land of Portugal. So you can learn more about this great, beautiful place and also learn more and hear more from our, our brother and sister, Diego and Stella. And why not consider supporting them financially? Perhaps you could do that with a one-off gift, or you could take one of the little standing order forms, give a small amount on a regular basis, earmark it to go exclusively for Diego and Stella and their work in Portugal. Or I wonder, as a church, would you consider developing a partnership with this wonderful couple? A number of churches, a growing number of churches, are doing this with some of our other missionaries. It's a wonderful experience. I'd be delighted to guide you. I get to know Diego and Stella on a personal basis, maybe send a team over, invite them to come over and visit you, develop a long-term personal relationship. So many possibilities with an EMF partnership. Well, as the Lord enables you, please do whatever you can, individually and corporately. Play your part in helping us reach Portugal reach Europe with the gospel. Thank you so much. There you can see our website. There's loads of other resources, little videos and so on. There we're also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Why not go along and follow us there as well? One final way you can keep engaged is by attending our upcoming conference, which is being held in Belfast in Stranmillis Evangelical Church. I brought along a number of these little um, leaflets here, postcards, with all the details where Diego is going to be one of the missionaries coming across to share in person about his work and ministry. And you'd be most welcome. It's free of charge. It's on Saturday, the 22nd of October. Grab one of those. Grab a friend and come along. We'd love to see you there as well. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to share about EMF. I want to just turn briefly to God's Word now, back to that portion that we had read a little while back, back to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. This really pivotal moment in the life of the early church, and indeed in worldwide mission. Acts 8, verses 1 to 8. Bulgarian pastor Christo Kulichev knew what it was to suffer for Christ. Kulichev lived and ministered during the communist era there. Due to his outspoken faith and his passionate proclamation of the gospel, he quickly became a marked man. And so on January 9, 1985, he was arrested, tried, and imprisoned 
for disobedience to the communist regime. His crime was that he continued to preach in his church. His trial was a mockery of justice. He was sentenced to eight months' imprisonment. But during his incarceration, he made Christ known every way he could, just like Paul and Silas. When he finally got out of prison, he wrote these words, and I quote, Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions, and it turned out we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in our church. God was, he says, better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. And there are thousands of stories like this to tell today, even more throughout the centuries of church history. The lesson comes true again and again. God uses the sufferings of his people to accomplish his sovereign purposes. God uses the persecution of the church to advance the gospel and expand his kingdom. That's exactly what's happening in our passage, Acts 8, 1 to 8. You see, up until this point, opposition to the early church had been quite limited and pretty low-key. But on the day of Stephen's death, just a few verses back, a great persecution erupted with the ferocity of a violent storm. Saul, we're told, began ravaging the church literally tearing it apart, going about from house to house, dragging off men and women and throwing them in prison. As a result, Christians are being driven out of the city, forced to flee for their lives. But even in the midst of this disastrous turn of events, God remains in complete control. That brings us to the first of our two points. Nothing can stand in the way of God's sovereign purposes. Nothing can stand in the way of God's sovereign purposes. This flight of the Christians from Jerusalem is an extremely significant moment in redemptive history. It's actually a turning point in the whole drama of salvation. You see, until now, the early church, it was centered in the city of Jerusalem. No one had moved beyond its borders. However, Jesus had said back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, another key verse in the book of Acts, that his people were to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, this great commission is now beginning to be fulfilled as many in the church are forced to flee. Where did they go? Chapter 8, verse 1, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. What were they doing as they went? Going about, verse 4, preaching the word, bearing witness to Christ, proclaiming the good news. So the storm of persecution whipped up by the enemies of the church ended up fanning the flame of the gospel into new and unreached areas. Instead of smothering the gospel, they succeeded only in spreading it. 
What they meant for evil, God used for good. How wonderful are the ways of our sovereign God. And you and I, fellow believer, we ought to take heart from this in our day and age. The truth is, nothing and no one can thwart God's sovereign purposes. Whether it's ruthless dictators, or godless governments, or false religions, or evil ideologies, the more the world opposes the church, the more the Lord preserves and prospers it. The hidden hand of God is always at work for the growth of his people and the glory of his name. The hymn writer gets it right. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Take heart, fellow believer. Our God and his mission is unstoppable. Secondly, we learn that no one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. No one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. So the gospel was spreading as the believers were scattered, but in verse 5, notice how Luke turns our attention to one of those scattered believers, to Philip. Notice this is not Philip the apostle, but Philip the deacon. And we're told that he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, we could easily read over a verse like that and be pretty nonplussed, but it's hard, you see, for us to grasp what a significant step this was. History records that there was an intense animosity between the Jews and Samaritans, that it had existed for hundreds of years. Jews despised Samaritans in both race and religion. In fact, in Jesus' day, Good Jews wouldn't even set foot in Samaria, lest their feet would be polluted. Such was the hatred. This, then, was surely the most unlikely place for gospel work and gospel growth. Yet as Philip breaks new ground in Samaria, as he preaches the word and proclaims Christ, a miraculous spiritual awakening takes place. Verse 6, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said and saw the signs that he did. The spiritually tormented, the physically broken were healed by the presence of the Spirit as Christ was being proclaimed. And so, verse 8, what a beautiful verse, there was much joy in that city. Once again, Brothers and sisters, we are being told that the gospel transcends culture, class, and color. That it is for those of every race, every rank, every religion. And we ought to remember then that no one is beyond its reach. That no heart is too hard for the Lord. 
And yet, how easy it is for us to think, deep down, that there are certain people who are just too far from Christ, too stained with sin, too settled in their unbelief. Maybe it's a wayward son or daughter. Maybe it's an indifferent next-door neighbor. Maybe it's an antagonistic colleague at work. And, and deep down, we've begun to believe that such people, well, they'll never come to Christ. It's just not possible. But when we think like this, we failed to properly understand the explosive power of God's Word. The glory of the gospel is that it is able to radically transform even the most unlikely of individuals. Even someone like Saul, the great persecutor of the church, he was no match for the grace of God. With the Lord, nothing is impossible. He is able to save and to save to the uttermost. No one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. May these vital truths then, may they fuel our prayers for the lost. May they fill us with fresh boldness in all our witness for Christ. May God help us. Amen. Amen.